Welcome to StartupCTO.io, the podcast where Miles Mathias and Kevin Owaki interview engineering leaders about management, startups, and software, because your CS degree didn't teach you to lead. And now, StartupCTO.io. Hello, and welcome to a very special Boulder Startup Week episode. This week, we've got some stories from a session entitled Dev War Stories. If you're a longtime listener, you know that this is one of our favorite questions to ask interviewees. What is your favorite engineering war story? There's three speakers giving their war stories in this episode. I'll have links to their profiles in the show notes. One last thing before we tee it off. If you hear a flashlight turning on and off, it's because Miles set up the session to have lights down low, kind of like a campfire ghost story kind of vibe. It was pretty fun. Enjoy, y'all. My story uh, today, I have a couple, but first one I'm going to do is really more on the um, op side that still involves technology um, and, and is relevant anyway. <coughs> My story starts in the state of New Jersey. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I was uh, I was CTO at a company that did a lot of um, a lot of ad traffic, uh, ad attribution, affiliate network type stuff. About a million dollars a day went through this business, so it was significant. We had a data center, this is back in the days when you had you know, your data centers that you co-load at and you own your own equipment. Long, long ago. Ah. Um, so, <laughs> um, we, had one, we had a data center in Colorado and a data center in New Jersey, and, and uh, they were supposed to operate sort of in a hot cold set. They were not hot, hot, it was disaster recovery. Uh, and we primarily ran out of that New Jersey data center. Um, the Hurricane Sandy came along one day, and everybody started to get a little concerned. And so we said, well, there's an easy solution to that. All you do is just you know, route all your traffic over to that other data center that you have. And um, so we started doing that, and then we realized it actually wasn't like hot warm. It was sort of more like hot and off. Uh, <laughs> there were like machines that were broken in that um, Colo Center and like not configured right and all that stuff. And we're like, oh no. We can't cut all of our traffic over to Colorado, and there's a hurricane coming. And our our colo provider in New Jersey was like, "Hey, don't worry. You know, we took the tour. Like, you do the tour of the data centers, and it's all like, you know, oh, it's amazing. Raised floor. We have generators. We have da 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 da. Like, we can handle a bomb going off like right over the. And so we're like, okay, you know, like it should be good with these guys. So the hurricane comes, power goes out, cuts over to to failover. And, the, and we're constantly, you know, pinging the site and like everything's up and everything. And we get a call from our uh, data center and they're like, everything's running okay right now, but we don't have enough diesel. And um, like diesel, it turns out since everybody, like there's a hurricane coming, everybody like bought all the diesel. Yeah. Um, so now we find ourselves having to find a tanker, a diesel tanker. Um, so has anybody ever seen any of the Mad Max movies? <laughs> because that's pretty much what we had. So we wound up like calling a bunch of third-party logistics companies. We found one that were like, yep, we got a diesel tanker for you. It was almost like they were waiting for our call. Yes, we have a diesel tanker for you. 
and, and it costs like eight times as much as it normally would. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I sent out to the data center, parked it there, like got ready to start transferring, and then all the power came back on, so like worked out. But they still charge us like three grand just for the oh. exercise of driving the truck over there. So it's not really much of a lesson to be learned there other than test your DR on a very regular basis. No, yeah. that's a good lesson. That is, that is a great lesson. <laughs> Failover. So that's my story. Yeah, I mean, I think the same hurricane is what made Trello switch from on-premises hardware to the cloud. Because yeah. they told the same story of like having to call diesel trucks to put in yeah. gas to their generators. <laughs> uh, we'll go with Jason next. Okay. Uh, Jason Cole. I, up until about a month ago, was the VP of Software Development for Reed Group. I'm currently enjoying a little bit of time off. Um, so... I'm going to tell my, I have also have two stories that I prepared. I'll start with the shorter one. Um, so I worked for, one, my, first, my first job in software, I worked for a small startup in Harvard Square in Boston. And um, we were in the process of pivoting from being a service company, building sites and products for other people to building our own products. And... Uh, we were working in this converted house where we, it was all like these little rooms that had been converted into offices, mainly by just sort of removing furniture and putting a little strip of table around the wall. And I was sitting in my office and I started hearing these noises coming from next door. And we had two uh, designers that we had hired and they were both working on the product. They'd originally been hired as part of separate teams to uh, design sites for our customers, but they had been put together to start working on the product. And for a couple of weeks, they'd been sort of bumping up against each other a little bit and arguing over which design was the best and how to do things. And uh, I started hearing the voices, and they were started getting kind of raised. And I thought, okay, well, they're having another debate. And then the it went from to you son of a and the two guys are on opposite sides of the room, yelling at each other. And I came in and said, what is going on, you two? And he, well, he said, and well, he said my design sucks. Well, your mother says your design sucks. <laughs> and they went for each other. And so these two guys met at full speed in the middle of the room and started swinging at each other. And so the, you know, and I, fortunately, it was the biggest guy in the office, but I uh, went and I got in between them. And so, mean, so meanwhile, people's heads are starting to pop out around the, around the floor. <laughs> trying to see what's going on. And so these two guys are just, it was like a hockey fight. They just were clawing at each other and trying to take swings. And one had really long hair, so the other one had a good grip on it. I got in the middle, separated them, grabbed the smaller one by the scruff of his neck, and frog marched him outside into the hallway. And I look around, and all these heads are popping out, looking what's going on. And I brought him out there, and I said, you stay out here until you can calm down. <laughs> and then I went back in and started talking to the other guy to calm him down. And uh, so they did calm down, and they actually were able to work together again. But we had just, this was a case where the pressure of a company that was in transition, that we weren't sure whether we were going to make it through the pivot, just sort of all boiled up. And I think the lesson here is to recognize that uh, while stress is part of the startup life, you also have to know when it's actually reaching a boiling point and when you need to take steps to diffuse the problem before it comes to blows. 
in this case, uh, the first thing we probably should have done was put the designers in two separate offices. We thought we were encouraging communication. We <laughs> didn't realize we were encouraging the wrong kind. <laughs> should, cool. we, should we go around again for our second stories later? Yeah, I'll like, okay. uh, add with that one. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. come back to the second one. Um, First, you can tell them who you are and what you do. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. My name is Ed uh, Johnson. I am the CTO of Goalie. Uh, we've existed for about a year, and we're making um, uh, kids' assistance to help kids with um, cognitive challenges get through their daily routines, become more independent, and make their parents less stressed. I can tell you more about that later. But it's been going for about a year, and um, before that, I spent a lot of time at Qualcomm, where I ended up as a director of engineering um, and managing a fair number of folks. So uh, I think my story will come from there. Uh, so this is not DevOps related. This is much more developer related. And um, the particular antagonist at this point uh, is a phone manufacturer. So Qualcomm delivers chipsets and firmware into to phone manufacturers and they wrap it all up and turn it into pretty phones um, which are probably in your pockets. So uh, this particular phone manufacturer shall remain nameless and may or may not uh, rhyme with Snapple. And, um, <laughs> and uh, they just released a phone and there were some reports already in the news that there were times when the phone didn't move properly and uh, instead was pretty much dead. So, you know, nothing to really worry about. Um, and the things that made it pretty concerning was that um, when this company snappled, they got a little uh, testy when um, things went wrong and they could make your team and your specifically life very miserable uh, if you were in their crosshairs. <clears throat> and second of all, um, the initial uh, information that our customer engineering teams were getting. Uh, we're putting the crosshairs right on my team, um, which was not very much fun. So while the phone manufacturer had not come back to us officially yet, internally we were sweating bullets like no tomorrow and trying to go through you know every change list that had been made, trying to make sure that we had gotten all the bug fixes ported, all this stuff, because it resembled a bug that had shown up uh, on a prior release, and uh, it was known that tracking wasn't all that awesome at making sure that everything got released at the right in the right places. So uh, we were trying to do our due diligence. Uh, the story ends a little bit more benignly. In the end, said phone manufacturer figured out that it was their own hardware, their own software, and never actually contacted Qualcomm. And so then uh, we were able to start going home in the evenings. Um, uh, and, and enjoying uh, regular regular life. And the lessons, I mean, I mean, there are a couple of lessons that I took from that. One is that, you know, I tried to look for a way that we could have short-circuited doing our due diligence, um, but I really, I, I really believe that that was still the right thing to do, uh, you know, making sure that everything that we had thought was in there was in there, and ultimately it was. But second of all, holy crap, like, the tools that we had in place as an organization, which was beyond my team at this point, um, were woefully, at the time, inadequate to do all this tracking for you. Like, we shouldn't have to go through and check the code to make sure that uh, the changes that we put in there are all there. It, it, that should be somewhat automated, and that was not. So, uh, 
it's not very glorious. It's not solving something that's you know a feature, but um, but that kind of tracking can save your bacon and allow you to spend more time at home. So. Any specific tools you guys use for that, or um, a lot of scripts? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, they're yeah. I, I mean, it, we were using Perforce at the time, mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it just wasn't good. Um, and then we had some custom databases, and I mean the problem is that there were almost too many tools, um, yeah. and so this was an organizational issue. More so than the tooling, yeah, a single tool. Got it. Yeah. Uh, so I know Jason has one more, and then after that we're going to open up to everyone else for their own horror stories. So start thinking else? about that. Do you have uh, one? I had, I do have a couple, but uh, I, I want to. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, you can you can do yours. Online? Okay. Yeah. So this is the yours involves losing a lot of money. So this is the story <laughs> of a company that spent fifty million dollars to make seventy two thousand. <laughs> so um, this was in the glorious dot com boom days of the uh, end of the nineteen hundreds and the beginning of the two thousands. I was working for a company that made uh, internet application servers and, and had an e-commerce platform called Art Technology Group. Um, we were one of the first to have an, have an e-commerce platform and so a lot of what we did was helping companies build their first e-commerce product. Uh, and so I got to do a lot of work with some interesting companies but the one that was the most uh, entertaining was a company called im.com and they started out as a company as uh, they were called why not you and then they decided im was the answer um, <laughs> this company started out so this was they, this company was based in los angeles i was working from boston so i was flying back and forth um, to work with them and this company started out with a group of engineers who had the idea that they were going to build an online casting database basically take a very paper-driven process and uh, automate it and, and make it so that they could extend the reach of uh, casting companies, production companies, and help them keep track and, and basically automate this whole process that was currently being literally still managed by couriers driving around LA delivering headshots. Um, so they started to do this, but they in order to get funding for it, they started talking to some people they knew, one of whom was a Hollywood dilettante uh, who was the son of an oil baron, had spent most of his adult life sort of wandering around Hollywood, spending a lot of his dad's money on drugs and women, and uh, trying his hand once in a while at acting. Um, but he had money, and so they talked with him. So it's fine, don't worry about yeah, it. So <laughs> So the, the moral of the story is it doesn't matter where the money comes from. Um, so they, he took the idea and ran with it, but um, he brought in another person who was a, a, a successful Hollywood agent, and they decided that this whole idea of just automating a back office process was too boring. This needed to be an online star search. Um, star search was American Idol for old people. Um, so for those of you who don't know, but uh, so late 90s, we've got people who are accessing the web on dial-up modems, and these guys wanted to build star search for the web. Um, so they started out by wanting to, by saying, okay, well, everybody wants to be an actor, so getting the actors is going to be no problem. What we've got to do is figure out how to get the agencies and get them involved, and we've got to make it glorious and glamorous. And so 
my team came in from Boston and we were trying to help them design this product and we were trying to solve both the back end of how do you get talent agents and other people actually looking at these things and the front end of how do you get talent coming online and uh, this guy who had anointed himself as uh, supreme creative director um, was saying things like well as soon as people log in I want them to see Cindy Crawford walking across the screen and then she's gonna pull back a curtain and then there will be our site and we're like okay dial up modem so that'll take about 20 <laughs> minutes um, and she's gonna be all pixely He's like, I don't care solve it so um, we we're trying to figure out how to solve this problem and trying to build a real, a, a valuable product that could be glitzy and sexy and all these things. And they kept coming and saying, well, make it more like MySpace or make it more like Amazon or make it more like whatever the last thing they logged into. Um, at one point, we brought in a full prototype of the new site and we walked them through the whole thing. And this guy stands up and he says, this is crap. You haven't listened to anything I've said. And he storms out of the room. And we're all looking at each other going, okay, well, that was four weeks worth of work. Now what do we do? And so we kind of talked for a little bit with the, the engineers who were still saying, yeah, you guys are fine. You're, you're actually designing something. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We walked back out. And as we're walking out, he had gone out, had a smoke. I'm not sure it was a cigarette he was smoking because he came back much mellower. And he came back and goes, you guys are doing a great job. Keep up the good work. And then wandered <laughs> off to his office. So we continued working with these guys with that sort of direction every single day. And um, as they started to grow and as they started to get interest, a bunch of people were jumping on. And it was the dot-com and everybody in Hollywood was getting excited about the webs. Um, and so they kept getting more money. But as they kept getting more money, they kept getting more ideas. And so they expanded from actors to, well, let's make, let's do it for musicians as well. Musicians are hot. Uh, people want to audition for that too. And then they uh, decided to open up an office in New York and they bought, uh, they rented a whole floor of a building um, in some of the prime real estate in Manhattan and were paying something like a million dollars a month for this space. And since they were there and since there were pretty women there this guy who was this dilettante decided that we needed to start we needed to add models to the product line because he wanted to audition them um, and so we added that to the product line and uh, so they kept expanding and, and, and they, as they continued to hire people they kept hiring all of their friends who would not come in for anything less than a VP title and so we had about 15 VPs <laughs> and about 10 uh, other people, um, engineers and other people who were actually building things, and every VP had to have at least one executive assistant. And so the company kept growing and growing, and, and every VP uh, would sort of bring on a couple of their friends who would all also be VPs. And uh, so this went on for about a year, and we kept working on it. And their goal was that they were going to go live. Uh, we had to launch the product during Oscar weekend, they were going to get a 90-second spot, which at that time cost about $2 million, um, that was going to be their big national launch. So uh, we, we scrambled to get all this stuff in. They kept adding new features. They're like, well, we got to have a payment feature because we got to collect credit, collect credit cards from people. And we're like, the web doesn't do that yet. Um, and uh, we were cramming all this stuff together. We got the thing together. We launched the product. Oscar night, they 
went live, they had their 90 second commercial spot, which was a whole bunch of random shots. They'd hired some art, artsy fartsy director to put together this thing. It was all these random shots of people looking soulfully off into the distance. And then at the very end, it just said, I am.com. And uh, they spent basically their last dollar on that commercial spot with the expectation that they were gonna build so much momentum, they were gonna get another round of funding. They actually were looking for another $50 million. Um, they didn't get it. And so, I know. <laughs> well, that was about 2001, and so the dot-com wave had crested, and people were no longer throwing their money at things in the hopes that they would just get rich because it was online. And uh, they ended up signing up a few hundred people. They made $72,000 in revenue off of actors and musicians and models and mimes and whoever else. Uh, that they had extended the product lines to, who wanted to be discovered, never actually did any of the contests, and uh, ended up closing their doors about three months later, and, in, and then spent the next year with all of the original founders suing each other over who owed <laughs> what money, and, uh, and who had the ideas, and who had to cover the debts. So the lesson. The lesson is the lesson. <laughs> um, know where your money comes from. Yeah. The lesson is, um, that uh, if you can find somebody stupid enough, you can get a whole year and a half's worth of, worth of consulting work out of them. In the late 90s. Um, yeah. In the late 90s. <laughs> no, actually, th there are a couple of, of lessons. I think one is um, focus is critical. Part of the challenge that we actually had here was that they were adding new lines constantly, and that just doubled the work, quadrupled the work. And so we could never actually get to the point where any one piece of it was successful because they kept slapping something new on. Um, and. I think the other, the other piece is they were, they were so focused on looking successful mm -hmm. that they forgot to actually be successful. And yeah. so all of the flashy real estate and all of the VP titles just collapsed under their own weight when it turned out that they, they didn't actually have a viable business there. Yeah, that's a good one. That's good. Yeah. And the, the experience was entertaining enough, I actually wrote a book about it. So oh, cool. You can find that on Amazon if you want. Oh, cool. Hollywood.bomb. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks for listening. Find us at startupcto.io or on Twitter at startupcto.io. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode.